if, you, if, you're, if you're talking risky behavior, I mean, risk is one of the things we're very bad at understanding as humans. You know, we're really bad at appreciating what really is a risk. And we have all sorts of instinctive reactions to what would be risky, which defy the logic of statistics. Hey, y'all, you're listening to Risky Behavior, where no subject is off limits. Kick back, tune in, and enjoy a beverage with us as we explore controversial topics and answer scientific questions. Ranging from health and nutrition to behavioral risks and climate change. I'm Dr. Taylor Wallace. And I'm Dr. Shatha Chakraborty. Together, we'll loosen lips and spill tea with special guests you will not want to miss. We are thrilled to feature today Dr. Richard Wingate, who is the head of anatomy at King's College London and a senior fellow of the Higher Education Academy. His research addresses how the identity of neurons and their ultimate location in the brain are genetically specified in development and evolution. Richard is committed to public communication and science through collaboration with artists, schools outreach, public speaking, writing and broadcast media, and he has served on Wellcome Trust Awards panels. In 2012, he acted as the scientific advisor for the Wellcome Collections exhibition in the UK, titled Brains, Mind as Material, and he co-authored the accompanying book. He is also the editor-in-chief of Brain Facts. Welcome, Dr. Richard Wingate. We are so excited to have you with us on Risky Behavior today. Richard is developmental neurobiologist. He's the head of anatomy at King's College London, which is also my alma mater. Shameless plug, I was last at King's College receiving the International Alumni Award for those under 40. So it's very close to my heart that we have a the head of anatomy here with us today to discuss all things neurobiology, especially his research, which addresses locating and identifying neurons in the brain and the relationship between genetics, development, evolution. This is really cool stuff, but it's also really complicated. And so we want to note that he's big on science communication, which you know that this is what our show is all about, getting complicated science to the public in a way that is fun and people can really understand it and apply it to their daily lives. So Richard, welcome. We're thrilled to have you. Well, thank you very much indeed. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, it's great to have an alumnus. I'm, I'm really excited as well. And congratulations on your award. Okay, and one more quick thing. I actually did my PhD in the old anatomy lab at King's. So where the geography and the war studies PhDs would sit was the PhD pen. And so we would be sitting and we, I didn't realize it until somebody said it to us, but those massive windows from floor to ceiling was because before the new lab, that is where students would be viewing the procedures that were happening. And when I learned that, I am very impressed with anyone in anatomy and biology because I'm queasy around all things blood and body. So once I learned that, it made it a little bit more difficult and I shifted where my seat was because apparently I was like right in the center of the <laughs> dissections. Just, just to make you feel even a little bit more queasy, there's a lift, an elevator. Um, right. right next Where they to would that, take the cadavers. Next to that room, yeah, it's actually body shaped. It's six six foot, seven foot long and about three foot wide, exactly the right shape for transporting bodies up to that top floor. Oh my God. I never did my, I never, I never worked on my PhD. This is how I justified it after 7 p.m. because it it got too creepy. (laughs) (laughs) That's when I would start drinking. So it worked out timing wise. The ghost would come out and I would leave to go to the pub. (laughs) Anyway, 
Taylor, you're working on neurobiology. I am, but first, I think just for our viewers, if you could just explain just a little bit about um, what developmental neurobiology is, just so everybody, you know, we set the stage for what our discussion is going to be today. Sure. Well, developmental neurobiology is everything to do with the development of the brain, its component brain cells, the circuits, the connections it forms, and the emergence of its function, so the behaviors it produces. And I think what's surprising for a lot of people is just how early it starts as well. So really early in the womb, those connections are forming, those brain cells are born. And so things that happen to you while you're inside your mother's womb can be quite deeply um, impactful on how your brain develops. And, and that's one of the surprises, I think, for a lot of people. It's a very early process. Sorry, as we, we study the genes, we study the, what we call the, the structure of, of brain cells, the morphology, and also those circuits. Okay. Yeah, and I was so excited when we got to have you on the show um, because I'm currently doing a clinical study in a, a, a Maya population in Guatemala where we have 1,200 uh, malnourished infants, and the primary outcome is cognitive development in the, the clinical trial. Um, and so, you know, what I've really, you know, kind of grappled with um, being the lead investigator on this study is that genetics likely do play a huge role. Um, and I, I think what where I wanted to go with the conversation is when we talk about genetics and neurodevelopment, I mean, is this something that we can actually do a nutrition intervention in? You know, we talk about different education, health interventions, nutrition. Uh, care to prevent cognitive decline in uh, developing parts of the world. But is this a case where mom, grandma, great grandma, you know, genetically, they, they, are, they, are they set up for failure? Well, there's been um, some very, very uh, important studies that were conducted in maybe from 20 years ago, um, 10 years ago, uh, looking at the development of cognitive function um, in small populations, uh, populations where the, the, the mix wasn't very great, maybe there were uh, not that many uh, families, so there was more, I guess we say, inbreeding in a, in a kind of general sense. And when that happens, you do surface um, genetic abnormalities, and these would be the kinds of populations where you could find uh, relatively rare brain disorders that would lead you, give you clues um, to the different genes and proteins which are important for the developing brain. So that's, that is one factor, that's a genetic factor. Um, but there are other factors as well. So there is also a big nutritional factor, there's a big environmental factor that comes into uh, brain development and that interacts with all those genetic risk factors. And then there are also uh, intergenerational uh, factors that come with the modification of DNA by life experience, which can be transmitted from generation to generation. So that's uh, something called DNA uh, methylation, where the actual structure of DNA is, is changed and that's passed on between mother to child, from father to child as well. One final further thing um, that can happen is actually the contents of your, uh, your gut, the bacteria that um, sit in your intestine. They can um, interact with your brain in a way which we didn't really understand before. So these, this gut bacteria that we have sitting there helping us to digest the, our food 
actually communicate with our brain. And um, that interaction is increasingly recognized as important. And it's something that's set up uh, when you're born. Well, it's, it's funny you talk about DNA methylation, like literally I could geek out with you forever on this because I'm one of the only researchers in the world that does research on this little vitamin called choline. Uh, and this whole intervention is giving eggs, particularly the egg yolk to these young infants because choline is a methyl donor. Again, really important. It's also the precursor to acetylcholine uh, mm -hmm. in the brain. So it's, uh, I, I, I was really excited when we were, um, when we had the opportunity to have you on because we really, as nutrition scientists, kind of stay in a silo and we don't really talk about developmental neurobiology at all. And when Shetha invited you to be with us, I was kind of like, why don't I have a neurodevelopment <laughs> scientist on my team? I was just going to say, we are, we want to bring down those silos and we know that multidisciplinary collaboration is really the way forward in answering some of these major challenges. And uh, so this is this is that cross communication that is so necessary. I just wanted to highlight what Taylor said, but please. Yeah, well, I, I totally agree with you. I think I think that there are barriers between fields, which I think the general public would think are very closely aligned. You'd think that a clinician working with a population in Guatemala looking at brain development would be talking to a neurobiologist who studies brain development in the laboratory, but actually our languages and cultures are very different. And sometimes those barriers are quite difficult to breach or broach. So, um, you know, I'd, I'd be lucky in a sense to work with clinicians who can feed me nuggets of information where I go, that's incredible. I, that, that, really, that really sparks a link with some of the stuff that we've been doing in the lab. These are serendipitous meetings quite often. The most important thing is, is, is to have an open mind and open channels of communication as often as possible. And appearing uh, with you here and having a conversation is one of those moments I'd never turn, never turn down a conversation. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, let's get into that because it's so cool because you are, you, the area you're in is complicated, especially for the layperson, but it's fascinating. And there are applications like Taylor just pointed out a real world application that he's working on that impacts the lives of in this case, those most vulnerable in Guatemala, but has can be scaled, has a lot wider implications uh, globally potentially. So we need to make sure that we create channels and forums where we can cross communicate. So you've been doing that though. And what I think is so fascinating about your profile, what really excited us, because there's plenty of scientists, right? And we know, and we're some of, we're guilty on it early on in our career, maybe of not communicating well. We communicate, we're trained to communicate to our peers. We design our communications for fellow academics, but not for real world uh, interpretation. And so you've also recognized that. And that's why we felt a real camaraderie with you as a fellow scientist who rec recognizes the importance of science communication. And you've done that and you've crossed sectors. It, you've done things in art and film, from what I can tell. So tell us a bit about that. How did you make art and science a thing? And together, how has that informed better communication of science? That's very much going back to what I just said before about having an open door and an open mind. Actually, it all started when um, the Wellcome Trust started putting money into art and science collaborations. And one of the artists, artists they funded was literally walking the corridor. Uh, of our building, looking for someone to talk to. My door was open and he came in and started chatting. And that was the start of a, a three or four year collaborative project that um, ended up in something you, I think you'd almost call uh, fine art. It was a, a, an art exhibit that ended up in, 
in a gallery and actually touring the world for many years, but opened a whole set of new networks and relationships for me with people who were interested in science who I didn't even know existed. So there was, for example, a society for literature, science and the arts. And I went to one of their meetings and these are a group of academics who are looking at what scientists do and how they do it and how they say it, but in a cultural context, in a way which I'd never looked at science before. And I just began to realize there's a whole series of worlds, parallel worlds out there who are interested in the same things. And if we can talk between ourselves, there are really good conversations to be had and really interesting problems that emerge and different perspectives on the problems that I work with. So lots of different things, television, uh, radio, uh, exhibitions. And your book came out of this as well, right? Mind as material. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. And a little uh, a book about really looking to see what people had done to brains, the brains as an organ, things they've collected, cut up, displayed, what, what brains mean as a, as a physical object. So for example, Einstein's brain uh, was taken without his consent, chopped up into many pieces and sent to different labs to analyze. The exhibition and book came from a collaboration with a, an art historian who I uh, wrote um, an article about the kind of visual culture of neuroscience. So looking at the way in which the brain has been drawn and represented and how that's developed since the late 1800s. That's super interesting. So I gotta ask, have we evolved? Yes, we have. And I think actually one of the most interesting things about our evolution is how timescales involved are enormous, um, but there's, there's definitely a significant evolution of the brain since the time that we started cooking food, for example. So that, that moment where we discovered fire or be, discovered a, a way of harnessing fire to cook food, um, you can see changes in the way our guts uh, is designed. Uh, it's how it's evolved to deal primarily with, we're, we're not carnivores or omnivores, we're something that uh, scientists call cuchinivores. We, we cooked food and our brains are similarly adapted to that high nutritional input. And that, that's what's enabled them to become quite densely packed with neurons. So yeah, that, that, and I, I think that's quite fascinating that you can, you know, we've evolved yeah. since, the, since, the dawn of, since the dawn of cooking. Well, and there's got to be a big challenge right now for neurobiologists with this whole COVID-19 pandemic, right? Because one of the repercussions in many people is, you know, cognitive impairment to some extent, whether you call it fuzzy or cognitive impairment. I mean, um, so that's got to be a huge challenge in your field right now. Uh, it's a really challenging time, um, particularly in the States. The UK is bad enough, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, really, it's a really difficult time. You know, one of the, I think, interesting things is how it's opened up areas that were kind of Cinderella fields of research. It's really fascinating. And there was a Nobel Prize um, that came out of the kind of decoding of the olfactory system. Richard Axel and Linda Buck won that. I can't remember exactly when, maybe in the late 90s. Um, but it, it, it's kind of like, it's interesting and it's niche and it's, it's kind of cool, but it hasn't been, you know, it's olfaction. There, there are some links with Alzheimer's disease, but it's not no one really is that bothered if their sense of smell is altered or... Cholinergenic neurons. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yes. and, and, the, and of course, the acetylcholine esterase receptor, ACE2, is implicated in COVID. And suddenly, people who've been working in the olfactory system find that they're um, inundated with interest. 
and inundated with money, I guess, to pursue this route for the virus into the brain. Because if you're a clinician, you know that that's, that's the best way of an infection getting into the brain is, is through the uh, nasal epithelium. It's so close to the olfactory bulb. It's like a tiny gap and it's a really kind of, it's a royal route for the transmission of, of disease into the brain. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the brain is the organ that uses the most energy and nutrients, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm, trying to, I'm going to try and get a figure right here, something like 20% of your uh, energy is used by the brain to 5% of your volume. So it's, it's uh, an enormous amount of energy to use. Well, and if you look at it from a nutrition perspective, what we see in, in patients that, you know, have gotten you know, fairly severe is they develop malnutrition. And so, you know, this has a huge neurobiology side to it. Um, and even downstream after the infection and after, you know, this is all over and hopefully we're all vaccinated and, you know, <laughs> we talk about this like the Spanish flu. <laughs> I'm gonna take advantage of your expertise here as well. So we've applied neurobiology to nutrition. We've, we're talking about it in relation to infectious disease, health. I'd love to hear about what we've learned in relation to human behavior. So when I talk about the brain and its evolution um, as a behavioral scientist, I say usually that we haven't changed that much from our ancestors in the sense that this flight or fight response is still how we react to risk. The way our ancestors have created communities and to ensure their survival, when they found themselves lost from their pack or their tribe, they would just go into this response system to initiate survival mechanisms. That would be in response to seeing a risk, an immediate risk, like a snake or a tiger. We don't have those risks anymore in modern day. We have this complex risk landscape, things that are perceived by the brain to not really register immediately because they're far away or they're slow moving. I'm talking about things like climate change or a future infectious disease. And uh, we talk a lot about different risks on this show. It's called risky behavior, right? right? Is Am I wrong when I say that the brain hasn't evolved fast enough to comprehend this complex risk landscape? Is our brain more similar to our ancestors than it is to, let's say, the supercomputers or the AI we're going to need to get to to understand how complex some of these risks are that we face? Is that an inaccurate, accurate thing to say? Um, well, you know, one of the interesting things about the brain is that it leaves no fossil record. So although we can look at fossils and see a nice trail of evolution for our, our limbs or our skull, uh, the brain is, is a bit of a mystery. Um, the only way we can really get a sense of it is size and maybe the impressions on the inside of the skull, you get an impression if, you've got a, if your brain is folded, most of our brains are folded, but if you're a, an animal that's a folded brain, then you, you can see that. Um, but ap apart from that, there's very little information about what the brain of our ancestors would have looked like. It makes for a compelling story to interpret the fight or, you know, how the fight or flight mechanisms have, have adapted, you know, to, to almost project back to what the risk environment would have looked like for us right. and think, you know, where those responses may have come from. But you're absolutely right that they're not directly we don't know if it was a snake we don't know if that was the scariest thing well i don't know about snakes but if you ever wanted to to see how shetha reacts 
in five inch hills to a bunch of roaches on the sidewalk. <laughs> Firefly right there. But we were out at dinner one night. <laughs> These huge roaches and she just I couldn't even be scared. I was laughing so hard. <laughs> well I d I don't fl I was looking at a spy I flicked I flicked a spider off my uh, daughter's coat this morning. And it was about this big. I thought, well, that's that's, a, that's not a, a scary one. I could pick that one up. But I think just 20% bigger and thicker, hairier legs, I would right. have been terrified. And I don't know where that comes from. Um, that's not a learned response. That feels very innate to me. I've never been bitten by a spider. Um, but back to your question about whether these complex scenarios are... Um, something that we're not adapted to cope with. I think the one thing that human beings, this is my own opinion, are, rather than kind of a bit of academic research, is that one thing we're particularly good at is, is storytelling. And, you know, we have a storytelling brain and that enables us to reduce relatively complex uh, scenarios into simple tales. Sometimes that's good and sometimes it's really bad because it makes things very linear and we get our, our cause and effect confused. But I think it, it helps us to reduce the complexity of very complex uh, systems. So that's, a, that's, a, that's a very important part of our, the way our brain works. And it has its positives, right? Because we need to be able to make decisions on the go. If we had to get through this entire process, if every decision we made, we had to process fully, we would be immobilized. So it, it's good for functioning, but it's not good for proactive planning for future risks. This is where we're constantly, I think, in in conflict with our, you know, speedy decision making versus taking the time and really rationalizing and looking at all of the options on the table. And ultimately, what we do as humans is we we just find a satisfactory answer that will get us through a term that is is not that is not that um, creative, but it's satisfying, right? That's that's what we do. Good enough kind of decision making, but. So we've evolved, and I, I take—I I really took that point that you made. We've evolved, but there's still potentially a long way to go to really match up to what we have established as a society and all the risks that we have created. Our brain needs to be able to figure out how to process that faster, or maybe we don't. Maybe we just bring in AI. I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. What about uh, technologies to help the brain? If, you, if you're if you're talking risky behavior, I mean, risk is one of the things we're very bad at understanding as humans you know we're really bad at appreciating what really is a risk and we have all sorts of instinctive reactions to what would be risky which defy the logic of statistics you know driving an automobile versus jumping off a mountain with a parachute what which is more risky overall exactly. in your life lifespan probably driving an automobile because we're more likely to do that i'm very unlikely to jump off a mountain again the parachute, although I did enjoy it when I did it. The computer, the, the AI advantage is, of course, having a, a kind of relatively neutral view of what risk is and, how, and what data is. But that also leads to, to problems as well. So kind of, I mean, you're the risk experts. I mean, how do you, how do you, uh, how do you think we're processing risk as, as uh, human beings? There's I mean, pros and cons, definitely. And this is one of those debates that I loved, I love having, and I can see Taylor being like, yeah, and you talk about all the time, <laughs> so move on. So, okay, but let me ask you this then, what is your fear? What is it that based on what you know about the brain, can you override some of that innate wiring? Is there, based on what you know, what is it that has surprised you the most um, related to fears or not? And what is it that surprises the public when you speak to them? I think the things that surprise me are just 
what specific functions of the brain you can lose. So you can lose your fear. And that's, that's interesting that learns, memories, risk evaluation, all that. You, you, can, you, know, you can lose it. Your amygdala is damaged, your fear goes. And that, that seems like a, a strange thing that can just disappear. Similarly, face recognition is a fairly common problem in brain disorders. And yet it seems that seems very specific. It seems why, why faces? And it's all to do with where things take place and where decisions are made in the brain and where functioning to, and how much how much of the brain is given over to it. The larger the area of the brain given over to face recognition, the more likely it is to be something that's knocked out when you have a stroke or something. I, I find those things absolutely fascinating and surprising always that we can lose very specific and very discrete functions, uh, which we think would be far more complex. So uh, I have to ask before we go, because we've got about two minutes left in, in the segment, and I've been wondering the whole time, what did they find with Einstein's brain? Was it just... I think they found, <laughs> um, the, the, the stats on it are not good. Uh, I mean, they're, they're not reliable, um, but the, there were more, more, more non-neuron brain cells, glial support cells than you would expect in Einstein's brain. But apart from that, nothing that um, is reliably different uh, between Einstein's brain and yours or ours. So- um, well, If I hit my head, one will probably fall out, but yeah. <laughs> so uh, there are really, you can locate functioning in the brain. This we know, this, is, this has kind of been um, retained by the public, but I think the specificity of it is what's so fascinating. That's a, that was a knowledge tidbit I did not yeah. know. That's really, really interesting. One last tidbit then is that, you know, the word form area in your brain is in the left-hand side of your cortex, so that if you lose visual input from your right eye or right visual field to that left part of your brain, because information from there crosses over to there, uh, then you, you can't read with your, with your right eye, but you can read with so let's say this right. You can read, read with your right eye. You can read with your left eye, but not with your right eye. I think that's right. So uh, yeah. That's anyway, so okay. So anyway, just just that that that, that kind of uh, specific and discrete loss of function from one side of your brain is always just blows my mind. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us. We had another neuroscientist on earlier this season, Bianca Jones Marlin. She's uh, she researches the relationship between oxytocin and child rearing in terms of relationship development through to, for mother and child through childbirth and then child rearing. Fascinating stuff. There's so many different sub <laughs> subcategories under neuroscience. We love that you took the time and shared with us a bit of neurobiology. And uh, this really this got us thinking. So the idea is to maybe have get some, some of our favorite neuroscientists back together again and solve some of these problems, break down some of the silos that exist, not just across different disciplines, but maybe within disciplines as well and really tackle the brain. Thank you so much for giving us this time. Thank you for being with us. That's a wrap for today. Have ideas for the show? Tweet us at RiskyBehaviorDC. That's all one word. My handle, at ShutTheChalk, that's S-W-E-T-A-C-H-A-K or Taylor's handle at Dr. Taylor Wallace. That one spelled as it sounds. You can also send us an email at hello.riskybehavior at gmail.com or a voice message at 202-713-5182. Shoot us some science or some shade. Thank you for tuning into Risky Behavior. Till next time.